Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians in chapter 1, as we continue through our exposition of this letter of Paul to the church at Colossae. And uh, just to set a little bit of context, I'm going to um, start reading um, from verse 3 and down into the verses that we will look at this morning in 13 and 14. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, these words that were written to your people, and the impact they made upon your people, and still do, from the time in which they are written, until today, and into eternity. We pray, Lord, that they would impact our hearts and minds, that they would bear fruit, that you would draw our hearts and minds upwards towards you. Lord, I pray that my words would be your words and that those words would go forth in power and precision and clarity and impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, <clears throat> throughout the history of the church, um, and even uh, before the church was established, um, there's been an unknown number of talented believers who have written thousands upon thousands of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which express the whole range of human emotions and theological themes and praise to God for who he is and for the works he has done. And and here in this letter, even Paul writes to the Colossians in chapter 3 and verse 16 and says that we are to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with, thanks, with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And uh, as I was studying for this passage, um, for this morning's message, I, I couldn't help but think of one such theme that is found in several of the titles of the songs and hymns we sing. As I look through the hymnals and I see the titles of the songs, I see this theme. But even more so, this theme is either alluded to or explicitly stated within most of the songs and hymns we sing. Hymns such as, Rejoice, the Lord is King, King of the Ages, Jesus shall reign, Lead on, O King Eternal. Crown him with many crowns. I love thy kingdom, Lord. And come, thou almighty King. And there's, there's many more, even if king or kingdom is not in the title. It's all throughout our hymnals and our heritage of spiritual songs. And there are good reasons why this theme of Jesus as king or the kingdom of God is found in so many of our hymns. Because these themes are found in so many passages throughout the scriptures. Just as it is 
clearly proclaimed here in our passage for this morning. In their systematic theology entitled Biblical Doctrine, John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew write this. They say, What is the overarching and unifying theme of Scripture? That's their question. They answer it by saying this. The broad theme of king, kingdom, human and divine, appears throughout the Bible. The Old Testament explicitly mentions this theme in 36 of its 39 books. The New Testament directly mentions the subject in 21 of its 27 books. All in all, 57 of the 66 canonical books include the kingdom theme, 86% of the Bible. The Hebrew words for king, kingdom, reign, and throne appear over 3,000 times in the Old Testament, while the Greek words for these terms appear 160 times in the New Testament, which is a third of the Bible. They go on and they say, with these ideas in mind, it is proposed that God as king and the kingdom of God should together be seriously considered as the grand overarching theme of scripture. A number of noble ideas have been considered in the past, such as the glory of God, redemption, grace, Christ, covenant, and promise. Each possibility explains a part of God's kingdom, but only God's kingdom explains the whole. From before the beginning until after the end, from the beginning to the end, both in and beyond time and space, God appears as the ultimate king. God is central to and the core of all things eternal and temporal. The kingdom of God convincingly qualifies as a unifying theme of scripture. In other words, the Bible is ultimately about the kingdom of God. It's about God as king. King over all things. Ruler, sovereign, master, Lord. And this is the theme which the Apostle Paul begins to shift his letter towards. After having encouraged the Colossians for their faith and love, in the beginning of chapter 1, explaining how he and his companions have not ceased to pray for them. In verse 9, he says that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He prays that they may be strengthened with all power and endurance and patience with joy that they may be able to do these things. And then he says that they would give thanks to the Father. That all these things they would, that he prays for them to do, all these things that he prays would be true in them, that they would live their lives giving thanks to the Father. Because he has qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And he prays that these spiritual characteristics would be a reality in the Colossians. And then after that, he states three reasons why they are to continually give thanks to the Father. Three reasons why, by way of application, all believers should give thanks to the Father. First, because of our rescue. Because of our rescue. In verse 13 he says, He, talking about the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's rescued us. We give thanks to the Father first and foremost because of our rescue. And he, he says right here from the domain of darkness. But there's really three things which the Father rescued us from concerning the darkness. First and foremost, the domain of darkness, which pertains to the realm of darkness and all that that encompasses. But within the domain of darkness, there is the kingdom of Satan, the principalities and powers, the demonic host and their influences, the, and the unbelieving world. First, he, 
He delivers us from this domain, this realm. Um, and the underlying Greek word is, is really authority, that this is a kingdom, referring to the kingdom of Satan, the prince of darkness, as he, as he is called. In Ephesians 2, in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, as Paul is writing to the believers in Ephesus and explaining what happened to them in, in, in their conversion and their um, entrance into the church of the living God and how they were to act within the church of God. He explains in Ephesians chapter 2 in the beginning, and he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What Paul is saying is that you had a king and you followed him faithfully because you were dead in your trespasses and sins and you walked accordingly. And he is a ruler. He does reign. There is a domain of darkness in this world. In Probably one of, one of the best books I've recently read called um, He Will Reign Forever by um, one of my seminary professors, Dr. Michael Vlock. And, and this is a book that I, I would commend to all of you called He Will Reign Forever. This book um, encompasses the whole theme of Scripture, goes all throughout Scripture, um, talking about the kingdom of God, and it really opens your eyes to the whole Bible. And he writes... Concerning the kingdom of God, he writes in it, he says, Man was created as God's image bearer to rule and subdue the earth in kingly fashion as God's mediator. But Adam and Eve listened to the voice of Satan through the serpent and disobeyed God. While God would still remain king over the universe, man failed in his kingdom responsibilities to rule the earth on God's behalf. That a transfer of power to Satan took place is evident in the fact that Satan could rightfully offer Jesus the kingdoms of the world if Jesus would worship him. It's in Matthew chapter 4 in his temptation. And, and this is, he goes on to say, something Jesus did not dispute. That, that Satan did indeed have power over all the nations of the world. And he still continues to have a certain degree of power. He is behind the rulers and authorities. This world exists in a domain of darkness. And, and it's interesting because as you, we look through the whole Bible, as we read the whole Bible, and it, um, we can see that <clears throat> the adversaries of God... His purposes and his people are always depicted in scripture as being satanically inspired and motivated. Uh, from the beginning of the fall in the garden, we see Satan clearly there. But then as we move on in Babel, which would later, Babylon refers back to Babel. Pharaoh, the idolatrous nations that that Israel has to face in the land of promise. Uh, Jezebel, the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14. That, that's one of the key passages that we learn about the, the fall and the characteristics of Satan. Is Isaiah is talking about the king of Babylon, but then he shifts and he talks about Lucifer, the day star. That somehow behind the king of Babylon, there's this other power. In Ezekiel chapter 28, we have the prince of Tyre, which same as in Isaiah 14, there is this, this power, this inspiration behind the prince of Tyre. And King Herod, as he tries to um, destroy Jesus at his birth, and he learns about, oh, there's another king of the Jews. We can see that he's satanically motivated. And, and Judas himself, that Jesus says Satan had, had entered into him. And then there's the Antichrist. Always. Every, every opponent towards God, his church, his people, 
the works of God, it's always satanically inspired, satanically motivated. That there is a domain of darkness in this world. But, but more than the fact that Satan rules and reigns, in a sense, the kingdoms and the powers in this world... There's also the principalities and the powers that the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. As he, he talks about um, our warfare. And, and sometimes we, we may not like to think about this so often. That we are in a spiritual war, but it's true. That we live on a spiritual battlefield. We are in a spiritual war. And Paul explains that. In Ephesians 6 and how as Christians we are to survive and in a, in a sense be victorious in the spiritual warfare. In Ephesians 6, 12 he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Saying, though we are in a spiritual war, we don't fight this war as a physical war, as an earthly war. And he goes on, he, he says how we are to protect ourselves. And, and most of the implements of the spiritual armor are defensive in, in nature, that we are to stand firm, we are to pray. But the main implication is that we are in a spiritual war. In that we battle against principalities and powers. This demonic host and their influences in the world. It's not just that Satan is behind the, the nations and the adversaries of God. But he also has the demonic host. Which he rules and leads. And there's, there's many mysteries there. And, and throughout the Bible we only get bits and pieces concerning um, Satan and his host of demons and the spiritual warfare. So, so we can't take license in, in making too many assertions or affirmations. We lean on the word of God, but the main implication is that there is a spiritual war and we, there is a domain of darkness and there are principalities and powers. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses writes towards the end of the Torah, the Pentateuch, talking, um, giving his last instructions to the Israelites before they go into the land. And he recounts um, what the Israelites did in the wilderness in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verses 16 to 18. And he says, uh, concerning their rebellion towards God, he said, They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you concerning Christ. He's saying they sacrificed to demons. They were worshiping demons, though they, they didn't think they were demons. But... Paul explains this later on, talking about something else in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as he's talking about food offered to idols and, and Christian liberty in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 19 to 20. He says, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. And from these two passages, we, we get the understanding that behind every false god, behind every false religion, behind every act of false worship, there is demonic power. There is, there is some sort of spiritual draw to idols and to false religion and to idolatry. And part of that is in our own sinful flesh. But the large part of it, the bigger part of it, 
is that there are spiritual powers. There's demonic power behind those idols, behind those false religions that hold people into bondage, that enslave people, unbelievers. This is the, the battlefield that we live on. This is the domain of darkness that God has rescued believers from, that God the Father has delivered us from. But it's not just Satan and his demons that are part of the domain of darkness, but it's the unbelieving world as well. It's the unbelievers within the world that they unwittingly act as as the pawns of Satan and the, the demonic forces. And they do his bidding. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, 18-20, he writes to them. And he's charging him. He's entrusting him with this charge. And he says, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. This charge I entrust to you. That by them you may wage the good warfare. Holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. What he's saying is that the, these two leaders in the church, or whoever they were, um, professing believers, he's handed them over to Satan. He's, he's excommunicated them. He's moved them away from the church into the realm of Satan, into the domain, back into the domain of darkness. He explains this, this concept of separation also in, in the, the contrasting light within the church and, and the, the kingdom of God and believers and, and the darkness in the world when he talks about um, discipline in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and about the man who had fallen into grievous sin and he says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord now he's not commanding the Corinthian church or or even talking about what he did when he talks to Timothy, he's not commanding the church or making an explanation that, that they are to literally take this man and, and somehow um, go to a place and say, here you go, Satan, have him. But in a sense, what he's doing is you are no longer um, allowed here in the body of believers who have been transferred, have been delivered from the domain of darkness, you're no longer allowed here so long as you continue in your sin, that we are separating you. And we're delivering you back to the domain of darkness from which you claim to be called out of. You claim to be delivered from the domain of darkness, but now you're, you're, you're still acting as if you're part of the darkness. And we, the church are in the kingdom of light. We have this inheritance of the saints in light. This is why the, the Greek term for church, ekklesia, literally means called out ones. We are called out from the domain of darkness. God the Father has delivered us from the realm of Satan, from his kingdom, from the principalities and powers, from the influence of the unbelieving world. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's rescued us. But more, more than that, he's rescued us from the power of darkness. Not just from the domain and the realm of darkness, but he's, he's rescued us from the power of darkness. And, and darkness within the realm of Satan, it, it does have power. There is this spiritual power that the darkness, empowered by Satan and his demons... And the unbelievers within the world acting as pawns of Satan, that, that there is a power. There's a power to blind, to blind us to the realities of this world, to the realities of God, to the realities of Scripture 
and the gospel. Speaking of the ministry of the gospel and, and his ministry, Apostle Paul talks to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and he, he explains to them his ministry and the power of the gospel. And he says to them, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What he's saying is that Satan, the God of this world, is blinding the unbelievers. And, and some of you may have seen this in your personal evangelism that you can quote scripture, you can give a logical argument, and, and for some reason, it's just falling on deaf ears. It's making no impact at all. It's like they, they can't even track with you. They're blinded. Or, or as, as Jesus explained in his parable of the soils, Satan comes along and he snatches the seed away. This is spiritual warfare. That the darkness has power to blind people. Paul talks about this darkness and what it does to the unbelievers. In Ephesians 4, as he's, he's talking to the believers in Ephesus, explaining how they are to walk now as children of light, he says to them in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 19, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is the darkness, the power of the darkness, the power to blind unbelievers. And for most of us, you should have that testimony that you were blinded. And, and some of us, we may have come to faith in our childhood and we don't see that drastic change. For others of us, we may have come to faith in our adulthood and, and there is that contrast of a, a life lived in darkness. And, and even as the hymn says, amazing grace, I, I, I once was blind, but now I see. And, and this is what God does in conversion that he removes that veil, that veil of unbelief, that veil that Satan has put over our minds as unbelievers because there is power in the darkness to blind. And all throughout scripture, there is these, the, this theme of light and darkness, uh, of the darkness attributed to the prince of darkness and the domain of darkness and the power of darkness John talks about it in his epistles, 1 John, about walking in the darkness. That When we're in sin and we're walking in sin, we're as if we're walking in the darkness and we're stumbling. So there is a power of darkness. And God has, the Father, has delivered believers from this power, this, this power to blind. But it also has power to enslave. And as I was studying, I came across a Puritan author, Matthew Poole, and he, he writes in his commentary on this verse in Colossians 1.13, he writes, The word which the apostle useth to express God's delivering of believers from the power of sin and Satan is very emphatical, emphatical signifying a gratuitous freedom where a stranger hath delivered him from slavery who did not deserve it, nor then desire it, though he was held fast as in fetters of iron. It's an, another theme throughout Scripture that we, we have this kingdom theme. We have the theme of spiritual warfare. And we have the theme of darkness and light. But there's also a theme of slavery throughout the Scriptures. And, and, and not just talking in, in the sense of literal slaves and and masters, but 
in a figurative sense, talking about us as believers or unbelievers, that we were once slaves to sin, but now as coming to faith in Christ, Christ has freed us. Those of us who were held captive in our sin, he has freed us, and now we are slaves of righteousness. But we were once enslaved. We're all slaves in a figurative spiritual sense. We're either slaves to sin and darkness and the devil, or we're slaves to righteousness and to God. Paul tells Timothy about this in, in Timothy chapter 2, or, or 2 Timothy rather, 2 Timothy chapter 2, um, verses 24 to 26. He's, he's talking about how Timothy um, should act, how, how um, leaders in the church should act. <clears throat> And he says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And then he says, get this, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We're honest with ourselves, and if we can see that contrast in our lives in, confer, in conversion, that we, we once did the will of Satan. Everything that the domain of darkness and the unbelieving world values, we did it. And yet the Father rescued us from that. He rescued us from the domain of darkness, from the power of darkness, but... Third, he rescued us from the allure of darkness. There, there was an allure to that darkness. We, we loved it. We, we were attracted to it. There, there's an attraction of this darkness. As John says in his letter of 1 John, he says, 1 John 2, 15 to 17, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John's saying that there, there is this attraction, there is this allure within the world. That comes from the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. And if you look at this in verse 16, there is a connection to the garden. Because this is exactly how Satan tempted Eve. That it was pleasing to the eyes and it looked like it was good for food. And so she took and she ate from it. That there is an attraction to the darkness. To sin. But more than the attraction which can incite our sinful flesh, is there's a love. There's a, a love for the darkness. God has rescued us from this allure of the darkness, but it's still within us. And as we look at the unbelieving world and those who um, preside in the, the domain of darkness, we can see this love. Most of us are familiar with John 3.16, and we may even be familiar with what comes after, but here in the most famous verse in the Bible, Jesus, speaking to Nicodemus, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But most of the time we stop there. But if we read on, we see that Jesus says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. 
But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. As Jesus said, as he said earlier in chapter 3, that we must be born again. That there must be a work in our hearts and minds through the Spirit to create new life, to draw us out of the darkness, to save us, to deliver us from the darkness which attracted us and which we loved, which we chased after, and which was the reason why we did not come to the light. God had to come to us first and to draw us out. And this is the greatness of this deliverance, that, of this rescue, that he's rescued us from the domain of darkness, from the kingdom of Satan, from the power of darkness, and from the allure of darkness. But more than that, there's, there's within this allure of the darkness is the lie that the darkness promotes. There's a lie. Satan is the father of lies and his kingdom is established and operated on lies. And every lie he tells and tries to sell off as the truth is that you will find fulfillment if you listen to and follow him. And you can look throughout scripture and see all the people he has tricked or tried to trick into believing his lies of fulfillment. This is the lie of the darkness that you will be fulfilled if you just follow him, if you just do what he says, if you um, live for what he says you ought to live for. The lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. And this is what the Father has delivered us from. This is how great his rescue is, that he's delivered us from the domain of darkness, from the kingdom of Satan, from the power of darkness, from the allure of darkness. And he's transferred us. He's transferred us. In his commentary, Curtis Vaughn writes concerning this word, transferred. He said, this is a word that was used in secular literature, talking about Greek literature of the time, in reference to removing persons from one country and settling them as colonists and citizens in another country. It might be rendered reestablished. The tense of the verb points to the time of conversion. And this is what many empires did. In the Greco-Roman world and in ancient history is as they would um, conquer a, a realm or a nation or a people. They would take those people and they, that they've captured and they would remove them from that country and transfer them to another country as colonists. But this is talking about it in a, in a good sense, in a liberating sense, that, that we weren't conquered, so to speak, it, Though we were, but we were liberated. We were liberated, delivered from the domain of darkness, and then transferred, reestablished in the kingdom of his beloved son. So we give thanks to, fa to the Father because of our rescue, first and foremost, from the domain of darkness and, and everything that that encompasses. And second, we give thanks to the Father because of our reestablishment. Our reestablishment in this kingdom of light, to share in the inheritance of the saints of light, in the kingdom of his beloved son, our, our great redeemer king, in this great reestablishment. Concerning the kingdom of God, once again, uh, MacArthur and Mayhew say in their biblical doctrine, they say that the kingdom of God can be explained in this manner. The eternal triune God created a kingdom and two kingdom citizens, Adam and Eve, who were to have dominion over it. But an enemy deceived them, seduced them into breaking allegiance to the king, and caused them to rebel against their sovereign creator. God intervened with consequential curses that exist to this day, and ever since he has been redeeming sinful, rebellious people to be restored as qualified kingdom citizens, both now in a spiritual sense and later in a kingdom on earth sense. 
Finally, the enemy will be vanquished forever, as will sin. Thus, Revelation 21 to 22 describes a final and eternal expression of the kingdom of God, where the triune God will restore the kingdom to its original purity with the curse having been removed and the new heaven and the new earth becoming the everlasting abode of God and his people. And as we read Colossians and we go through chapter 1 and we read about all these great things that Paul is praying for them and he comes to verse 13 and verse 14, we can easily skip over the great things that are happening within this short verse. He says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And that is a short verse, a short sentence, and we can easily skip over the greatness of what the Father has done for us in delivering us from this domain of darkness. This was the hope of all the Old Testament saints, of all the patriarchs, of all those throughout church history, of of all the people throughout the history of the world. That we live in a broken and sin-cursed world. That we reside on a spiritual battlefield. That we exist in a spiritual war. And God the Father, the creator of the universe, through his Son, our Redeemer King, has delivered us who have repented and believed upon him for eternal life. What a a, a great deliverance. What a great um, resettling, reestablishment. This is why we give thanks to the Father. Why we are to live our lives, our Christian lives, as we strive towards holy living. Why we are to constantly give thanks to the Father. Because apart from him, we would still be within the domain of darkness. We would still be enslaved to Satan to, to, to do his will. And there are two aspects of this kingdom of God. There's the already and the not yet. The, the, the spiritual and then the physical. Because even, even Jesus, when he came on earth as the Messiah, as a long-awaited Messiah, the Jews knew that the Messiah would be the king. He would be the king of the Jews. And he came and they were a bit... Um, confused because many of the prophecies that the Messiah was supposed to fulfill he did not fulfill and those were those prophecies concerning that earthly kingdom that that he would reign on the throne of David that he would um, defeat and subdue all the enemies of Israel but he came in a spiritual sense and and all his naysayers all his critics even asked him this in Luke 17, he, he's approached by Pharisees, and, and, and the Pharisees are, are asking him. They, they, being asked by the Pharisees, it says, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. And it's interesting because what Jesus is saying is he's talking about these two aspects of the kingdom of God. He's saying the kingdom of God is in the midst of you right here. I am the king. I have come to deliver you from captivity to sin, to save you, to redeem you. But then he's also saying that one day the fullness of the kingdom of God will come. Talking about his second coming. This is what they didn't really fully grasp. That the prophecies about the Messiah throughout the whole Old Testament were about his first coming, his redemption, and also his second coming. The spiritual aspects of the kingdom and salvation and being delivered from the domain of darkness, but then also the physical, earthly aspects of the kingdom. And even his disciples were a little bit confused about this. 
They said in Acts um, chapter 1, after, uh, just prior to his ascension, bef- after his resurrection, they, they, they come together, and, and in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, they, they come together and they, they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He's saying, don't don't worry about the earthly, physical inauguration of the kingdom. You just worry about the spiritual, that you will receive power from the Holy Spirit, and you go proclaim this kingdom message to the whole world. Dr. Vlock, once again in his book, He Will Reign Forever, says this. He says, Those who believe in Jesus a king have been transferred from the realm of Satan to the authority of Jesus. They have a present relationship to his kingdom, even before it arrives. Christians are positionally transferred to Christ's kingdom, even though the actual establishment of the kingdom awaits his second coming. Thus, while not reigning in the kingdom, members of the church have an important relationship to the kingdom. He quotes another author, and he says, Eric Sauer summarizes this well. As to their persons, they are citizens of the kingdom. As to their existence, they are the fruit of the message of the kingdom. As to their nature, they are the organism of the kingdom. As to their task, they are the ambassadors of the kingdom. When we are born again, when we are delivered from the domain of darkness, we are transferred into the kingdom of light. We are kingdom citizens. Those of us who have been born again, those of us who have the spirit within us, we are in the kingdom. But we're in the kingdom spiritually, positionally. That kingdom is still yet to come, and it will come. It'll come when our king returns, and he reigns in righteousness. So we give thanks to the Father because of our reestablishment in the kingdom of light, under the reign of the righteousness of King Jesus, and as children of light. We are... We belong in this family of God. We have this inheritance with the saints in light. We are adopted, as the scripture says. We are God's children. The scriptures use several analogies concerning people that we are are subjects to a king, either in the domain of darkness and the prince of the power of the air or, or Jesus, our king. Or we are slaves, slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. Or, or we're sons, we're children. Either sons of disobedience or sons of light. The Apostle Paul he explains this analogy of, of children of light in, in Ephesians chapter 5 as he's, he's proclaiming to the, the church at Ephesus how they are to walk, how they are to live, how they are to act as a church. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 6 to 14, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That we are called to come to God, to receive Him as Savior, as Lord, 
And if we do come, it is evidence that he is drawing us, that he has delivered us, and he is delivering us from that domain of darkness, and he transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son, and we become his very children, children of light. But we are to no longer walk in the darkness, or as the sons of disobedience do, that are blinded by the power of darkness, that are enslaved by the power of darkness. No, we walk as children of light, and as light we expose the darkness. As Jesus said, a a, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And and no one lights a lamp and hides it under a bushel, but you you put it up that that its light may be seen. And so therefore we are to let our light shine that that, that people may, may see our good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. We are to walk as children of light because we are in the kingdom of light. And so we, we give thanks to the Father. We live our lives giving thanks to the Father as Paul prays for the Colossians because of our rescue. Second, because of our reestablishment in the kingdom of light. And third, because of our redemption. Because of our redemption. And we are redeemed by our King. It's interesting that, that he would stoop so low to redeem his subjects and make us children his children adopt us into his family one commentator writes he says this little phrase in whom in whom has its antecedent in the son meaning it refers back to his son and it affirms that redemption and forgiveness are ours by virtue of union with Christ because we we are united with him in his death and his burial and his resurrection as as Paul says in in 2 Corinthians 5:21 he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him this is what theologians call the great exchange that Christ's life, his perfect life, he took on human flesh to walk amongst us, to be the perfect man, to obey God's law perfectly, so that he could then be that perfect sacrifice and take on our sins, so that he could pay for our sins as that perfect sacrifice and, and do away with the punishment of sin. But it, it's not just the fact that he paid the price of our sins, but he has given us his perfect life that it's not just the fact that he pays the punishment but he fulfills all righteousness that we are given his life that we are redeemed by him and we are redeemed through his blood that that christ had to become a man he had to have human flesh because that flesh had to be crushed that flesh had to bear the punishment he had to shed his blood because as the author of hebrews writes he says without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins and so god had to take on human flesh so that that flesh could be broken and that blood could be shed for us because as sin entered into the world through one man through one man must sin be paid for is paul writes in romans chapter 5 romans chapter 5 talking about the greatness of this great exchange and and talking about how uh, sin entered into the world through one man he says for if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man jesus christ there's there's many themes that this this verse is alluding to the themes of the two kingdoms the domain of darkness and the kingdom of light the the themes of of slavery to sin and slavery to righteousness the, the, the themes of, of light and darkness. But then there's also this sense of the one man. 
and sin and righteousness. That, that sin came into the world through one man and, and, and righteousness and redemption would come through one man as well. And so we thank the Father because of this great rescue from the domain of darkness, because of our reestablishment in the kingdom of light, because our, of our redemption through the Redeemer King. Now he has redeemed us. He has sent us his one and only son. He has sent us a savior and we are saved into his perfect life. We are saved by his life and then we are called to walk in newness of life. Paul continues in Romans chapter 5 and he says in verses 9 to 10, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is just a little bit of the greatness of the gospel. That it's not just that we have salvation from our sins and we have eternal life, but much more than that, that our salvation is, is not primarily about us. It's about God. It's, it's about what God is doing in and through us, about his election, about his choosing, about his drawing, about his converting us, causing us to be born again. But more than that, that, that we are part of a kingdom. We are part of his plan for all of human history, that we are are included in that plan, that he is doing a work, that he is destroying the works of the devil. And that he will rule and reign forever. Peter writes about this. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And because of this, this greatness of the gospel and, and what God has done in delivering us from the domain of darkness and reestablishing us in the kingdom of his beloved son, because of his redemption, we give thanks. We walk as children of light. We proclaim his excellencies, and we remember him. We remember his death, burial, and resurrection. We remember his sacrifice. And this is what we are called to do. And this is what we are going to do right now as we remember his sacrifice. That he took on human flesh. There was a real body that was crushed for us that bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And if you are unsure of where you stand with God, I, I ask you to seek him while he may be found, to call upon him while he is near. The, the, the Christian life starts with repentance and faith, but it does not end there. We continue to live a life of repentance and faith. And, and part of your assurance, because many believers struggle with assurance, and, and you may not be sure whether you've been saved or you, you, you thought you were saved once, but now you struggle. The, the, the evidence is that you continue to repent and believe. And you continue to strive for obedience. And, and it, it, if that is you, that, that you um, may struggle, but... You have that evidence of repentance and belief and, and you, you understand that you are a sinner and because you're a sinner, you deserve God's wrath. Yet Jesus Christ came to deliver sinners such as you. Then that's evidence of saving faith. And if you are sure that you have saving faith, then you're welcome to come to this table to partake of the cup and the bread. This does not save anyone. This is merely grape juice and a cracker, but it is a symbol of what Christ has done for us. And he, he commands us to celebrate this supper. And so I ask that the men would come forward.
to help to um, uh, distribute these elements as we come and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And let me pray for us, and then we will celebrate together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this deliverance through the blood of your Son, through his body, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, through his life that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, that you have transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so we celebrate that sacrifice that made this possible, that delivered us. And as we sacrifice, draw our hearts and minds upward towards you and remind us of what you have done in and through us. For your glory in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul... Apostle Paul writes, go ahead, and he writes in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Sorry, Mariah, I got this order a little bit off, but um, this is my second time. We'll get it down. <laughs> so as we, the men have distributed the elements. Um, I want to read along in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writes about the Lord's Supper. And uh, he says to the Corinthian church, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us take the bread and eat together. And every time I, I eat, I have to say this. And it's a reminder for me, as for you, that as we eat the bread and we hear that crunch the verse that the author of Hebrews writes sacrifice and burnt offering you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me and that body was crushed for our sake it was crushed Paul goes on and he says in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us drink together. And as we eat the bread and drink from the cup, it's a memorial of what Christ has done on our behalf in his sacrifice, but it's also a remembrance of what he will do. Is as Paul goes on to say, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes because he is coming again that he has delivered us from our sins and because of his great deliverance because the father's great deliverance we are inheritance with the saints in light that we are in the kingdom of light but that kingdom has not yet come it is here but it is yet to come but one day it is coming and as jesus said he will not drink of this cup again until he drinks anew in the kingdom and so as we eat and drink we remember what he did but we remember his words of what he will do that he is coming back and so communion is is somber but it's also joyous because he is coming and he will return and he will reign in righteousness and he will crush the head of satan and all things will be made new so with that let us pray heavenly father we thank you for the cup and the bread. We thank you for the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his words, for his reminder, for the truth that he is coming again to rule and to reign. So until that day, help us to live lives worthy of our calling, worthy of his name, and help us to glorify him as we go about our week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.